Good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you this weekend as we worship together. And uh, I wanted to share a little bit of news from overseas with you. As you know, we're very involved in helping plant churches in a part of Asia where less than 1% of the people know Christ. And we're hoping to plant about 6,000 churches. And uh, we're well on the way. And we have these partners that we call Pauls. There are leaders there who are pastors, but who are training pastors to become church planners. We go there, we train them in conjunction with our global partner, Timothy Initiative. And it's exciting when they tell us what God's doing. And one of the Pauls who have trained sent us this picture. He's baptizing 22 new believers uh, in his church there in uh, West Bengal. So uh, we're excited for him. He wanted you to know that. They consider themselves the Wooddale Group. So that's pretty cool. Then this pastor, uh, out further away, I believe I met him as well. He's baptizing five people in this canal of water here. So let's give it up for all that. It's exciting. And you, uh, you invest in that when you give, and it's making a difference. And when these folks are baptized, it's significant. A lot of times when they do that publicly like that, it will cost them being ostracized in their families, being persecuted. Some are even killed as a result of it. So it's a big deal. On April 15th, we have a baptism here after this service. And so if you've never been baptized before, why not declare your faith? Don't face near the hostility in other countries. Declare your faith in Christ. Say, well, I was, I was baptized as an infant. Is that okay? And that was okay for your parents. It was significant for them. But you need to have your own expression. So uh, you see in the worship folder how you can get a hold of us. Let us know about your baptism. We'd love to be part of that with you. So far in our series, At the Cross, we've discovered that God invites us through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, to lay our burdens down at the cross, get rid of that weight. God wants to give us freedom, we said. He wants to give us forgiveness. He wants to give us the stamina to endure suffering. And last weekend, we said he even wants to change our our self-image. He wants to give us a sense of worth and value, that he loves us, that he cares for us, that we matter to him. I want to camp on that just a little bit longer this weekend I want to talk about what it means to belong, to belong to God, to belong to Christ. Because all of us, all of us want to belong. All of us want to be in. We all want a sense that we're home. In order to do that, though, uh, it's time to draw with Dale for a moment. So grab your markers, your pens, Crayolas, and draw with me here on a piece of paper or on your hand or your neighbor's hand if they'll let you. And just make the very simple image of the cross like you see behind me here. And then on the cross, just write the name of Jesus because he died on the cross for our sins. Then put God up toward the middle and do a kind portrait of yourself over here someplace on the side, all right? And uh, what we know, what we've been talking about, many of you have known this for a long time, is that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for you and for me. In essence, he substituted himself for us and took on himself the condemnation and judgment we deserve, the wrath of God on himself. And then what God does is he allows you and me then to be substituted for Jesus. So now God treats us as though we're his son. He sees us as sinless. He loves us. He forgives us. He embraces us. It's like it's always been good. And God tells us that the only thing that has to happen in this transaction is that we just have faith in who Jesus is and what God has done for us. And then theologically what happens, just so you know, I did go to seminary, all right? God imputes into us or places into us all the benefits, the freedom, the forgiveness, the value, the worth that Christ has accomplished for us. He imputes that into our lives 
by giving us the Holy Spirit. So put an S kind of across your chest and don't get too, you know, don't get a real big head. It doesn't mean you're Superman or Superwoman. It means that the Spirit of God has come to live in you. And the Spirit brings all those benefits into our hearts and our lives. So one of the things the Spirit does, I forgot to add this, is while he makes us aware of our sinfulness, we talked about last week, he also makes us aware of our, our value. And we said last weekend, how do you know, how do you understand the value of something? Remember the answer to that? The answer is by what you're willing to pay for it. it tells you how valuable something is. Well, how valuable are you and me? <clears throat> Peter tells us, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, he says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. We go back to the drawing. Peter simply saying is God did not put gold, silver, jewels, or anything material, cash, in order to purchase you, to reconcile you back into his family. He gave us his son. So he continues here on, in verse 19. He says, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God. And then verse 23, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. So this is our benefit that God has given to us, his grace and his love for us. In other words, when we think about this, we're reminded of our benefits, that God did this for us to give us great benefits. You go to your job and you want benefits, right? And you turn a certain age, you expect benefits. Well, God says I have some tremendous benefits for you when you place your faith in what I've done for you. Those are described in part in Romans chapter 8, so turn there with me if you will, please. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, and we're going we're gonna to read and then look at some of these wonderful benefits that are ours in Christ. Paul starts out in verse 15, he says, the spirit you receive, that's the S, remember you drew, all right? <clears throat> that's the Holy Spirit. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Now, if he says you live in fear again, he must mean that previously we lived in fear. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Rather, the spirit you received brought your adoption to sonship. Then he says, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies to our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. And indeed, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So let's look at this together. What are all these, what are all these benefits? Imagine you have been made a child of God. Think about that for a moment. You've been made a child of God. The cross is not meant to stress us out, okay? The cross isn't a stressor. The cross is a lifter. It's meant to lift us up. Yes, we see our sinfulness, but we're reminded of what God has done for us. We see our value there, and he would give us life for you and for me. And he would adopt us into sonship. Say, wait a minute, wait a minute. How about daughtership? How about us ladies, all right? Like, what's the deal there? Is, it just, is this just like a male-oriented kind of thing, or are we included? Yes, you're very included. But you've got to remember the context of what Paul is writing. So let's kind of put ourselves there for a moment. Otherwise, we won't appreciate it. 
He's writing at a time when women were wrongfully and children oppressed, like they are to this very day in many places, even here at times. And Paul is living in the context of a world where while women and children are oppressed, it's very male-oriented, and all the inheritance passes on to the males, particularly like in Jewish culture, to the firstborn male who keeps the family name and family possession, the clan, alive. Well, Paul comes along and he says, look, in Christ it's all changed. It's all radically changed. It doesn't matter, matter whether you're a male or female. Doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Doesn't matter whether you're young or old. Doesn't matter the color of your skin. None of that matters. The fact is, in Christ, everybody is like a firstborn son. In other words, you step into the role that culture plays for the firstborn son. You now, every one of you, receives the maximum inheritance. You have the you have the best spot in the family. Every last one of you, Paul says has been adopted into the significant place in God's family. So he says back here in verse 15, he says, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. I want to talk about that for a minute. I want to talk about fear. A lot of us struggle with it. Paul is saying is, you know, before before you became a believer, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the S in your life, it was the F, it was the fear in your life. You know, the, in the ancient world, they didn't have, there weren't atheists in the ancient world. Everybody believed in some kind of God, false gods, but they believed in some kind of God, and they lived in fear of those gods. Just study your ancient history. Even the Jews, you know, lived in fear of God because of the law, because of their disobedience, because of the punishment, the discipline. And I find that a lot of people still live in fear today with whatever the thought about God is. I was just at a conference on, on Islam and you know, one of the speakers was saying, you know, even, even Muslims struggle because not even Muhammad is sure that he's going to make heaven. So there's that sense of fear. There's that sense of fear. And I find that even Christians sometimes, even those of us who are followers of Christ, still live in an unhealthy fear relationship with God. Now the Bible does talk about the importance of fearing God But for the believer, that word fear means to reverence, respect. It does not mean to be afraid of. God does not want us to be afraid of him. He doesn't want us to to cower from him. And when I was growing up and attending church with my family, I grew up in a brand of Christianity that taught that you could lose your salvation. I mean, you could lose your salvation any day, any time you sinned. And I remember as an adolescent sitting in a Sunday school class and the debate that in the class was this. What happens if you have a really bad thought and all of a sudden you're in a car accident and you die and you didn't have a chance to tell Jesus, I'm sorry, forgive me, come into my heart again. Where will you go? And the answer from the teacher was hell. And I thought, wow, I'm damned. There's no hope for me. I mean, by the time I'm an adolescent, right, it's like, oh my goodness, I can't stop sinning. I'm breaking all the rules. And I would obsess about that, which made things even worse. And unfortunately, what I was being taught was a form of Phariseeism. It was all about, you know, it's almost like works. And the reality is, once you belong, you belong. <laughs> you don't lose your salvation. You don't, have to, you don't have to fear. You don't have to worry that God, you know, today is going to, he's going to get rid of me. He's unhappy with me. God doesn't want that relationship with him. He doesn't want that to exist with us. But, you know, I've read about people who actually like negative motivation. People who say, I gotta, have the, I, gotta have the, I gotta have the fear of rejection in order to perform. In fact, I was reading about something called defensive pessimism. 
Defensive pessimism uh, is this idea that, you know, when it comes to my job, for instance, I, I, should, I should think about the worst case scenario so that I'll be motivated to do better and to do my best to avoid that scenario. And when it comes to, you know, sports, I should imagine the worst case scenario so I give my best performance. Now, while that may work in terms of sports and in terms of your job, it really does not work in terms of the faith. That's not the relationship God wants to have with you. He wants this to be a love relationship, a fearless relationship. He doesn't want you to be afraid of him. He doesn't want you to worry about whether you're in or whether you're out. It's not the relationship God wants to have with us. And yet, many of us treat, us, many of us treat God that way. Think about it. Think about your motives for a moment. Why, do you, why did you come today? Some of you are like, my spouse made me come, or my kids, you know, whatever. All right, why did you come today, right? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you serve? Why do you sacrifice? Why do you do that? I mean, ask yourself, honestly, why do I preach? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Is it out of fear? Is it out of guilt? Is it like, man, I got to stay on God's good side? Because he might be grumpy today, and if I'm on the bad side, I'm in trouble, so I got to impress him. I got to put like as much into this as I, as I can in hopes that he, he's happy with it. That's, that has nothing to do with grace. Now I'm back to earning a relationship. I'm, now I'm trying to keep in God's good grace. And God says, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. You know, one of the tests that you can apply to yourself, or I suppose carefully to others, to determine whether or not they're, they're operating out of a fear base is, how much joy do you have? How much joy do you have? People who are in a fear-based relationship with God, the joy's not there because you just never know what side of the bed God may wake up on today. I mean, can you imagine living in a family like that? And some of you have, and perhaps some of you do. We never know, you know, what your spouse is going to do or say tomorrow. They're going to be happy, upset, grumpy, angry. You don't know what your parents are going to say or do tomorrow. You feel like you're living on edge all the time. Depending on their judgment, their evaluation, your performance, what you do, God does not want that kind of relationship with you, nor does he expect that. Another test you can apply is the test of criticism. I, I'm not talking about constructive criticism. That's important. But you know, some people are just critical by nature. Have you noticed that? I have found that sometimes, listen to this, I found that even Christians can be critical by nature, believe it or not. Not at Wooddale Church, but at other churches. <laughs> Why, why are we critical? Think about it for a minute. Oftentimes, oftentimes, and I include myself, we are critical of others to feel better about ourselves. Now, what's that all about? That's all about, I've got to contrast myself from somebody to feel better about myself, to feel like maybe I'm okay with God. Because if I'm better than you, then certainly God's more upset with you than he is with me. Wow, we're called Pharisees at that point. That's just, that is a, that's crazy thinking. But a lot of us struggle with that. God says, you don't need to struggle with that. I don't want you to be afraid of me. You belong to me, and I belong to you. Have some joy in your life. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I mean, does that sound like it's all coming out of fear? <laughs> I don't think so. That's coming out of somebody who's experienced a sense of great gratitude for God and what he's done for them. That's where that's coming from. And what about this whole adoption thing anyway? What does it mean to be adopted by God? Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about that in our Multiply series? In fact, we have some agencies here on adoption. Some of you went and found out. I hope you're getting involved. Let us know. 
how you are or, or how that has affected your life. But Marcia and I have told you our story. Our youngest son is adopted. We got him from an emergency foster care home when he was about seven months old. And it took a couple of years to adopt him. It's a long process out in California. And we finally got, to, we finally got a court date at Hayward Municipal Court. We were so excited, but we were also very scared and nervous. We were scared and nervous because a, a notice had been put in all the local papers for 90 days announcing that you know, this adoption hearing is going to be held. Any relative can show up and protest. I suppose anybody could. And we thought to ourselves, now, it's all going to come down to the judge. And if a family member shows up and the judge is partial to keeping the child in the family somehow, this could either prolong the process or he could be taken from us. We're, we're nervous about this. We're kind of concerned about this. And about the same time, I get a notice of jury duty. And I got this notice to come to the Superior Court of Oakland, much higher, more powerful court, longer sentences, you know, more serious cases are going to be tried there. And it's going to happen the exact same time that our son's supposed to appear with us in municipal court. But all my friends said, you don't have to worry about it. They'll never choose a pastor to sit on a murder trial. That's what it was going to be for. They were wrong. <laughs> I got selected as an alternate. It's going to be a trial. It's going to last about three weeks. Right during the time we're supposed to have our court appointment, so I went into the judge's chamber. The judge was named Judge Barranco. And I'm telling you what, what a tough, what a tough guy. Intimidating, intimidating man. And uh, I walked into his, um, into his chambers and pled my case. And I said, Your Honor, I, I, we've been waiting to adopt our son. We've got our appointment scheduled. You know, we're nervous about this. I, you know, I really would appreciate if you excuse me off the jury. And he looked at me and said, Mr. Hummel, you are not being excused from my court. You will serve on the jury. And I'm going to have that adoption case brought up here to Superior Court. And on the last day of the trial, when it's over, you, your wife, your son come into my chambers and I'm going to ratify the adoption. I'm like, okay. You guys definitely had your caffeine and had sleep today. <laughs> the other services were like, oh, okay. <laughs> Three weeks go by, it's the last day of the trial. The verdict's read. Everybody leaves the courtroom. Marsha shows up. She's got Tim in her arms. We go into Judge Bronco's office. He looks at us, smiles at us, takes his pen, scrawls his name across a couple of sheets of paper, shakes her hand. We have our picture taken with him. Nobody dared show up in Superior Court to protest. <laughs> I think I know why. <laughs> and then we later found out that he and his wife were also in the process of adopting too. It was such a God thing. Now, why did I tell you that story? I want to talk about your adoption, your adoption. And I used my son's adoption as an illustration. Listen, when our son Tim was adopted, his nature did not change. He was still the same little boy. There were, when he was adopted at that moment in Barranco's chambers, there was no, like, trumpets or mystical choir that appeared or dust that fell down on us, all right? Nothing like that happened. He still, he was still a little boy. Everything was still the same for him. The only thing that changed was his legal status. 
all of a sudden, he, at that signature by the judge, he became legally and officially part of our household. At that moment, he legally became an heir, an official brother to his brother and his sister, and co-heir to whatever we would pass down. That's what changed for him. Listen, when Christ died for you and me on the cross, our nature didn't change. The Bible says in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But our legal status changed. In that moment, God said, because of your death, Dale, Marsha, Tim, Heather, Kyle, whoever you are, now has a legal status before me as my son or my daughter with all the rights and privileges thereof. In fact, you are now co-heirs to the universe with my son. It was all done. And it had nothing to do with you because the judge said so based on what his son did. And all I have to do is exercise faith in that and I'm part of God's family. And what happens is, then the rest of my life here on earth, I still have my sin nature, but now I have the Holy Spirit. And the question becomes, as I journey through this world, okay, who will I surrender to? Who will I yield to? That sinful nature or God's Spirit? The journey should be that my big nature, my sin nature is getting smaller and smaller and smaller until I finally stand before God in what's called glorification. Another word, so you know, it's seminary. And all that simply means is the sin nature is now gone. I'm dominated completely by God's, God's nature, his spirit in my life. And won't that be a wonderful day when you don't have to fight with temptation anymore? Won't that be a wonderful day when your flesh isn't, you know, isn't there controlling you anymore and you are under the dominance of the Holy Spirit? You're still fully yourself, but you're in, you're in the realm of his Holy Spirit living in you. Won't that be an awesome day? We have no clue what it's going to be like right now. We only have a taste of it. I can't wait. I can't wait for that day. That's who you are. That's what you have. That's what Christ has done for you. You've been adopted into his family. But I, I challenge you, and I challenge myself with this as well. We don't live like we've been adopted into God's family. We still live, many of us as Christians, we still live like we're outside of the family. We treat God like he's an ogre. He's not. He's not. We've been brought into the family of God. Now, let me just, let me give you a taste of some of the, the benefits that come with that. Again, Romans chapter 8, you might want to jot these down. First benefit is great security. Verse 15, it says, The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought, you, brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. You cannot be unbelonged by God. <laughs> Once you belong, you belong. How many of you ascribe to Facebook? Can we see your hands? It's okay. It's not an evil thing yet. But, I mean, <laughs> all right. Don't worry. My wife's on Facebook. My kids are, okay? So you do, right? Okay. Now, I'm not, all right? On Facebook, I understand people can unfriend you. Is that true? <gasps> that alone would keep me off of Facebook. <laughs> How many of you have ever been unfriended? Wow. Now, don't raise your hand on this one, okay? How many of you have ever defriended somebody? Aren't you glad God doesn't have a Facebook page? 
you wake up Monday because of something you did Sunday and it, you find out God defriended you. God does not work the same way as human beings. Aren't you grateful? John 13, Jesus says that, it says that Jesus loved his, very, his own disciples. He loved them to the very end, even Judas. Judas unfriended Jesus. Jesus did not unfriend Judas. He'll never unfriend you. That's security. Amen? All right, number two, authority. We have authority. We are sons and daughters of God. Man, huge authority comes with that. Whenever my grandkids come to our home, they have huge authority. They have more authority in our home than our own kids do. Marsh and I made up our mind long ago. We want our kids to feel, grandkids want to feel like our house is their house because it is. They can go to the fridge. They can go to any bedroom, any room they want. They can take out anything they want, anytime they want. Man, they have great authority. More so than their own parents, more so than you. You have great authority. You're co-heirs of Christ. You have authority over death. See, death... Death can't keep you. Christ has defeated death. Death is a doorway into eternity for us. It's a graduation for us. It's to paradise and then our resurrected body. I'm glad I'm going to die someday in Christ, in his timing. We have, we have victory over disease. Cancer isn't the end of it. Even in this life, we can pray for healing, and God oftentimes will deliver. Not always, but often. And when he doesn't, it's for his own purpose. We just learn to trust him with that. We have victory over the enemy himself. Satan can't accuse us because Christ died for us. Satan has nothing. He, he can't do anything. He can't say a thing about us because we're in the family. We belong. We have authorities. Number three, we have intimacy. We cry, Abba, Father. And Abba is the Hebrew word. It's actually Aramaic. It means daddy, daddy, daddy. It's a very endearing term. Whenever I'm in Israel, every once in a while I hear these little kids going, Abba, Abba. And I'm thinking, what is going on? And I realized they're, they're talking to their dad. My son's uh, boys call me Papa. My daughter's kids don't. They, they say Grandpa because they call their Daddy Papa. It's very confusing. But when I, whenever I go to visit my son's kids, or they come, and it's like the first time and I walk in the door, I love hearing those little voices, Papa! And the arms spread out. My arms spread out, and I swallow them up in love. God says, I'm your Papa. Yes, there are times to be reverent and acknowledge I'm holy and, I'm, and to revere me. But there are also times when I just want you to call me daddy. When's the last time you called him daddy? Do you feel that relationship with God? You say, I don't because I had a terrible earthly father. I'm so sorry for that. I, I'm sincere when I tell you. But please understand, don't confuse that with your heavenly father. Look what he did. He's proven he's a worthy daddy, a papa God. All right, number four, assurance. God gives us assurance. Look at, uh, look at verse 16. It says in verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies to our spirit that we are God's children. I've experienced that, haven't you? I usually experience it when I'm in prayer and I'm in the word of God. I just get that unseen sense of, of assurance that I belong to God. All right, number five, inheritance. We've already talked about that. What a wonderful inheritance we have. Uh, number six, uh, discipline. God, the Bible says, he, you know, God disciplines those whom he loves. Like a father or mother disciplines their children because they love them, to protect them. He'll do that for us because he loves us. And last but not least, family likeness. As we grow in our spiritual journey, go back to my messy drawing here, as I'm moving on with God, 
more and more his likeness comes out of me. And there's nothing that God uses more to bring out his likeness, listen carefully, than suffering in our lives. The suffering that others bring us, the suffering we experience because of these bodies, the suffering of living in a sinful world, God can turn it around and God uses it like a chisel, like Michelangelo would use the chisel to bring out of rock one of the most beautiful sculptures in the world, the Pieta, all right? An amazing sculpture. How he saw it in the rock, I don't know, but he, he just chiseled away rock and brought out this beautiful image. Listen, God uses suffering to bring out the image of his son in our life. When we accept God's will, when we say, Lord, I'm, I don't understand this, but I'm leaning into you and we trust into him, God brings out his presence in our life. I have a dear friend, Marcia as well, who right now is in a terrible stage of cancer. And we had uh, lunch with him a couple of weeks ago. And I, I, I want to tell you something. There is a brilliance about him. There's a beauty about him. Though he's suffering bodily, there's, there's just something very special. He, he's glorifying Christ. He's leaning into Christ. He's rejoicing in Christ. He's surrendered his situation to Christ. And you just sense the presence of God in his life. That can come from nowhere else. So even the likeness of Christ. We all want to belong, don't we? And God says, I want you to belong to my family. There are all these awesome benefits for you now, and there's these tremendous benefits that are waiting for you in the future. Do you sense you belong today? Nezra Nance did not. But in the year 2011, at the age of 24, she discovered that she really did belong. She said for most of her life, she did not sense that she belonged, that she didn't belong in her family. And when she got into her 20s, she started looking at missing person reports, trying to figure out, you know, who am I, where, and who do I belong to? Because she just didn't believe she belonged into the family she had always known. And as she's going through all these missing reports, she came across the picture of a 19-day-old infant by the name of Carlina White that was abducted from the hospital. And when she saw that picture, she said, that's me, that's me, I know that's me. It was easy for her to find the mother. She contacted Joy White, the mother. They contacted the New York Police Department. They did DNA testing. And Nesra discovered she was really Carlina. And she finally found who she belonged to. I love what her mother, or I'm sorry, I love what her grandmother, her 71-year-old grandmother, Elizabeth White, wrote. She said, it's all started with a feeling that she didn't belong. The nagging feeling led to a search. She searched, and then she found Joy. And I love the play on that, don't you? She found joy, the name of her mother, but she found joy. The joy of finally belonging. Do you know that joy? Are, are you at peace? Are you at rest that you belong? See, one of the burdens we bear is, is trying to find a place to belong. 
trying to sense a place where our value, our worth comes from, our roots come from. And we look at all these places and none of them really ever satisfy. We still feel like something's missing. Jesus says, come to the cross and give me that burden of wanting to belong and place it on the cross because son, daughter, I've adopted you. The truth is you belong to me. You belong to me. Would you bow your heads with me, please? I want to ask you, I want to ask you a forthright question. Do you know that you belong to Jesus today? Do you know that you belong to God's family? Do you, do you believe what he's done for you? And if you don't, would you like to come home today? If you're watching online, you could do this. Well, would you like to come home today? Jesus just like finally have that peace and rest in him today. You can do that by accepting what he's done for you. You can do that by surrendering yourself to him right now. But you got to mean it. It can't be like insurance. It can't be out of fear. It's out of love. And it means you got to be willing to begin a new journey with him, to be discipled, to grow in him. If you're ready to pray this prayer simply to yourself where you are right now with me. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that you substituted yourself for me. I believe you died my death, took on my guilt, my shame, my sins. Father in heaven, I believe that you made it possible for me to now become your son or your daughter. God, I I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. By faith, and it's a weak faith, I do believe that I now belong to you. I receive, I receive your spirit. I receive your mercy and your forgiveness. In receiving, I repent. I turn away from everything I've been trusting. God, I want to begin this journey of following you, this journey of less of me and more of you. And I'm willing, God, I'm willing to seek out discipleship and be accountable Father, I pray for anyone who has prayed that prayer with me today that your Holy Spirit would bear witness with their spirit that you would give them the assurance that they belong to you. Their heads bowed and eyes closed as as just a witness before God. If you prayed that prayer with me today, just raise your hand and put it down, please. And then after our service, I would like to invite you to come forward, see me, one of our pastors. And let us help you now begin this journey, this walk with God. You can't do it on your own. We're meant to have a public faith, not a private faith. Private, yes, me and God, but public in that we don't hide our faith. We grow in our faith. We're a family together.